Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. I am going to do something that in the 15 years of this church I've never done. Uh, normally when I speak to you, I write out every word I'm going to say into a manuscript, and then I will break that down into an outline, and that's what I bring up here with me. So I try to memorize my manuscript, and then I will teach from the outline. Um, and there's pros and cons to that, but one of the challenges of that is if I ever go off script, it can get weird for all of us. And... Um, the topic that we're talking about today is really uh, one that's very charged in our culture, and I don't want to go off script, and I don't want to say, uh, say things the wrong way, so I am going to um, do something I've never done, which is I brought the manuscript here, and I'm going to read it to you uh, word for word through this whole thing. Um, it's 20 plus pages long, so we'll be here a minute, but uh, don't worry, I, it's a big font, and I double-spaced, so we're going to be okay. Um, it is a... a it is a, uh, a spicy topic we're going to talk about today. I'm nervous and excited for this as we continue the series called Body Language. Today we're going to talk about Jesus and gender. This series has been an exploration into what does God say about our bodies and what to do and what do our bodies say about God. Our relationship with our bodies tends to be one of the most intimate and intense experiences we have as humans. But right now, we're in a cultural moment where questions are being asked about the body and what it means to be a man or to be a woman. And that, those, these questions just haven't been asked on this scale ever in human history. Now, before you freak out and start looking for the exits, uh, I want you to know that I think our time is going to be more compassionate and encouraging than you might think. Um, I've been thinking about this topic a lot for the last few years, and as I dove into this, I found some things that I think are really good and, on this topic, and my hope is that this message will help you love people well who are wrestling with what it means to be a man or woman in today's world, and, um, and or or whether that is just wrestling with gender stereotypes or maybe they're wrestling with something like gender dysphoria. So often in our culture, these conversations can become very polarized and uh, this us versus them kind of stuff. Um, and my hope is that everyone here understands that at this church, what we are driven by first and foremost is love and that we desire that everyone here, no matter what they are dealing with, would find hope and healing in a relationship with Jesus. And while gender and the issues swirling around it feel very new to us, the burden of the Jesus follower hasn't changed much. For 2,000 years, Christians have had to take, have had to take on hot-button issues with nuance and thoughtfulness and conviction and compassion. So today, for the Christian, I want to help you learn how to navigate this moment well. For the skeptic, I want to acknowledge how poorly the church has equipped people to lead and love well, but still offer to you a counter vision of what freedom looks like. And for those of you in the room who feel like you don't fit typical gender stereotypes of our culture, I want to show what God has to say about the significance of your body and how it is right for you to reject some of the expectations that get put on us as men and women. And for the people here who experience gender dysphoria or love someone who does, I want to come alongside you and serve you the best way I know how by elevating the truth of Scripture 
by examining the science and pointing to the peace Jesus can give us on our path towards healing. In culture, when we disagree with someone, they're dead to us, right? So as we dive in, my request is, don't be done here if you disagree. I want your good, and so does God. And while this is a difficult subject, the fact is, I care too much about you, about hurting people, about the truth, about the gospel of Jesus, to just sit quietly and not have a hard conversation out of fear of being misunderstood or disagreed with. You may not like my message or agree with, you may not like my method or agree with my message, but please know my heart on this. This talk is born out of compassion, truth, and a deep desire to see trans people find freedom in Christ and experience the loving, kindness, renewal, and flourishing that comes from Jesus. And also know this, this topic is personal for me too. All of us have friends, family, or loved ones who are wrestling with all of the gender stuff, and I'm right there with you. So we're living in a culture that's pretty obsessed right now with gender. This has been brewing for a few years, but it's really picked up steam. Here's a quick timeline. In 2014, the cover of Time Magazine said that we were at the transgender tipping point, meaning that was what was previously a fringe expression was about to become the new normal. In 2015, Caitlyn Jenner came on the scene in this famous Vanity Fair cover, which I'm sure we've all seen. And in the last few years, we've seen the byproduct of crossing that tipping point. The Boy Scouts have changed their name to be more gender inclusive. Several church denominations have ordained clergy who identify as trans or non-binary. And one of the top medical professionals in our country for the Department of Health and Human Services is a trans woman, Dr. Levine. Now, the most generous estimates say at most 1% of the U.S. population identifies as trans, and that's including the ever-increasing subcategories of non-binary or gender-fluid people. But while only taking up at most 1% of the population, it does feel like more than half of all media we see has a nod towards these new gender expressions. Today, the very phrase, um, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, uh, that would have been unheard of and inconceivable how many years ago? 100 years ago? 20 years ago? But now, even if someone rejects the notion, they still understand what's being communicated in part because we've crossed the transgender tipping point. The percentage of young people who deal with gender dysphoria has skyrocketed in the last 10 years, increasing by more than 4,000% in teenage girls alone. So something's going on in culture right now, and it's very confusing. And in response to this, instead of having thoughtful dialogue about truth, human value and what's necessary to address life's most existential questions, what we've got instead is a culture war. But if all we do is relegate this to a cultural issue, we miss a huge opportunity. Because at its core, this isn't a political tension, it's a deeply personal one. In our church, we have people every week who come through our doors, who feel at odds with their own body, and who battle gender dysphoria. We've got parents who are figuring out how to walk the tightrope of sensitive emotional presence and loving, truth-filled leadership with kids who are non-binary. There are dozens of Christians at Area 10 who work and are confronted weekly with difficult decisions of what it means to follow Jesus in an office that exalts the things that they're not so sure about. So let's talk about this. To dive in, I want to give you a three-part framework for the discussion. Number one, what does God say? We'll study scripture, learn God's heart on this, and be encouraged that he is not mute on this issue. 
Number two, what does the science say? We're not afraid of science. We'll lean into it. And using, so using non-politicized studies, we'll see what does science say about gender and our current response to it, and then let the data inform our response. And then thirdly, what do we say? Based on all this, what do we do? How do we lead and love based on this information? How do we come alongside people who identify as trans? What if I don't fit ge- traditional gender stereotypes? How do you love and lead a child going through some sort of gender incongruence? What do you do when a friend wants to transition and change what you call them? All right, let's start with what does God say? In this series, we've been going in Genesis 1, back to Genesis 1, and I think it's important to keep coming back to it because that's where God created humanity. There's a lot we can learn about how and why we were made. Let's read again Genesis 1. We've read it several times in this series, starting with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right off the bat, we see a couple things about humanity. Like humans are created in the image of God. Humans are commissioned to steward creation and multiply. And humans are created male and female in part to serve that purpose of multiplication. So we see in the first book of the Bible the distinctiveness between man and woman, how they look. We see that that stuff is not a social construct. It was actually set up by God to display something about God. Now that doesn't mean modern stereotypes are affirmed by God. We'll get into that. But there is a poetic emphasis in the text placed on the distinction between man and woman. Preston Sprinkle, a theologian and biblical scholar, he he said, God could have created a sexless humankind to reflect his image, but he chose to create humans as sexed beings, female and male. According to the Bible, there's something happening in our sexuality and our fully embodied selves that reflects the image and nature of God. Male and female are both extensions of God's image by design. So then you flip over and you see something in Genesis 2. Let me read it to you. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, if you've been coming to A10 for a while, uh, you've probably heard me explain that text before. But let me just briefly mention some things here. The word helper that is given to Eve here, she is Adam's helper. And when we hear helper, we think less than. We think inferior to. And that is why some of you are probably like, seriously, Chris? Like, the woman is the helper? All right, stay with me. In Hebrew, that word means something more like suitable partner, and it's most often used in reference to what God is to us, a partner who guides us and assists us in power. So this passage actually highlights the power and necessity of women because in the word used to introduce Eve, it's the same word used to describe God and what he does for us. 
And the Hebrew phrase used here is a combination of the words uh, K and negdo, the K meaning same, and negdo, which means opposite. So when God creates Eve, it's established here there is power and significance in her. It is shown that she's the same as Adam in that she's a human, but also that she's opposite from Adam in that she's different, she's female. The passage shows her equality in value and uniqueness in sex as an expression of God's image. Now we have the word in their rib, which is sela, and usually that word, uh, you usually reread that story and we think about a literal rib being removed from Adam to create Eve. But scholars say it's very unlikely that sela meant rib as we define it. Because of the 40 times that word is used in the Old Testament, it never means rib like we know it. Genesis said God did open up Adam and take some of him to make Eve, but the predominant usage of the word in Hebrew is in reference to sacred architecture and beams that were used in God's temple. So rib means part of a sacred structure. So stay with me here. Eve's body is pulled from the sacred architecture of God's design in Adam. And now Eve is formed from that architecture and together, the two radiate God's presence in the world. Man and the woman, man, man and the women are both pieces of God's sacred architecture, which in part is why throughout history, the union of a man and a woman has served as the beam upon which society stands. It's why broken homes lead to broken societies. Because in the creation of man and woman and the union of man and woman, we see the sacred structure that actually leads to human flourishing. Now some of the stereotypes we have today of what is manly or what is feminine are not from scripture, and we'll talk about that. But the uniqueness and, just go with me here, the non-interchangeability of male and female, that is from scripture. The Bible calls men and women the same, call, calls men and women to the same things often. Men and women are all called to be, to, to, to be, uh, to show slow to anger, to be humble, to be peacemakers, to be faithful, obedient, those kind of things. But there are unique commands given to men and women that are different because they are different. Men are called to provide for their families, and that doesn't mean you have to make more money than your wife, but Scripture says a man who fails to provide leadership for his family is worse than being completely separated from God. And let's be honest, some of us grew up with dads who made great money, but never actually provided the love or leadership that we needed as kids. Men are called to protect those they love, to go first in sacrifice, to be the lead one to die in the family, to use their strength, power, and capacity in service of others. And women are called to exhibit gentle strength, to nurture and bring life to others. And God doesn't say, you're not a woman if you don't have kids. But his call on your life is to nurture and bring life to the world around you. I know women in our church who don't have kids, but they bring life everywhere they go. And they mentor others and care for families. Scripture does not blur the differences between men and women. It elevates them. God made us male and female on purpose, for a purpose, to be reflected out in the world. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says it this way, dividing the race into two genders, male and female, one or the other, not both, 
not one then the other, is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oafs. It was God's idea. Now, if you've ever been on TikTok, and I'm sad for you, if you've ever been on TikTok or YouTube, a popular statement you're going to hear there, because apparently anybody can say anything on there, is, well, Jesus didn't talk about gender. He didn't say anything about it. And the problem is, he did. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by religious leaders about marriage and women's rights. Like, for real, it's in there. So, and Jesus answers their question by quoting to them Genesis 1 and 2, what I had just part of what I had read to you. Jesus reaffirms male and female, and male and female in marriage, as the standard operating procedure of God's design. And he says this is the eternal God who knew everything we'd face in 2023. And he says this in a climate, even then, where same-sex attraction and cross-dressing was super, super popular in Rome. Throughout the Bible, in Deuteronomy 22.5, 1 Corinthians 6.9, 1 Corinthians 11, anytime the crossing of gender boundaries is discussed, it's never exalted. It's expressed as not in line with God's will. Yet people try to use the Bible to prove otherwise. They'll mention how the Bible highlights a eunuch who comes to faith as celebration of non-binary gender stereotypes. But in the ancient world, eunuchs were eunuchs because of a birth defect or forced castration. The story in Acts chapter 8, for example, isn't about establishing new gender norms. It's about the power of someone using, I would argue, their singleness to devote themselves to God. Another passage that often gets used in this conversation is Galatians 3.28. Let me read it to you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Some hold that up to say, to say look, Christ eliminated the binary limitations of male and female. But if you look at that verse in the context, which you should always do, and whenever someone mentions a verse that seems off to you, go read the whole chapter, seriously. Because this says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and now that you belong to Christ, you are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Paul is not eliminating categories of gender. He's eliminating the class system of the day. He's saying, it doesn't matter what you look like, and it doesn't matter where you came from. All that matters is that you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. This isn't about sexuality. It's about being a child of God. Passages like this show that in the ever-widening spectrum of definitions, Jesus and Scripture both hold a very narrow view of what it means to be a man or a woman. But we still have a problem in the form of gender stereotypes because there's a big difference there's a difference between what God says about being a man and woman and what culture prescribes. Think about it. King David was a warrior and a general and a king, and he also played the harp, wrote music, and danced half-naked in front of his buddies while praising God. You tell me which box that fits in. Deborah was a warrior leader who led Israel in battle. She cut some people down. She was hardcore, and all that to say we can hold firmly to the uniqueness of being man and woman and give people space to break from culture's stereotypes. The teenage boy who isn't the typical alpha needs men to help him discover and express his masculine self as a king, lover, sage, warrior, and know it's okay if he prefers music and poetry to beer and sports. And it's important that we teach the guy who is the football player 
to use his strength and power to serve God and not his ego or his own selfish desires. The church must be a place where we help the woman who is assertive, disagreeable, and a power lifter realize that even though she's different, she is created by God with intent, and she can display her womanhood in freedom even though she's not the typical girl. And it's where we must help the young woman who loves watching Pride and Prejudice three times a year. Some of you are like, only three? It's where she can do all that, but she knows that being a girl doesn't mean acting like a Kardashian because they don't set the standards of femininity. God does. Reducing what it means to be a woman or a man to nothing more than external clothing or cosmetics is such a minimization and misunderstanding of the divine power God has given us as sexed people. When God hardwired into us and made us capable of and called us to is beautiful and complex. It's a burden and a blessing, but it's how he created us. And I know there's a chance here that someone feels hurt by that or attacked, or it only makes you feel like God is against you, but please hear me. God does not distance himself from you because of your pain and baggage. Some Christians may have done that, but God doesn't do that. He draws near. Jesus was fully God, yet he came and limited himself to be stuck in his body. He took on flesh so that we could be saved. I got to think he knows what it's like to feel trapped in a body. Jesus knew what it was meant to feel at odds in his flesh because he was God walking amongst us. Meaning if you're trans, Jesus can relate to you. He gets it. And we can trust him with our deep emotional pain because he went to the cross for us. Jesus died for you and wants to come alongside you if you put your faith in him. Now, that's what the Bible says. What does science say? As we've crossed the transgender tipping point, our society dove headfirst into affirmation therapies and acceptance to help people, and that makes sense. A line you will hear from parents a lot on this issue is, I'd rather have a trans daughter than a dead son. And as a parent myself, I get it. These are really difficult things to handle, especially with our kids. And the thinking behind that statement is, if I accept someone's new gender expression, it will improve their mental health and decrease the risk of suicide. So as I looked into this, my question was, is this cultural response of affirmation helping those who are struggling? Because real lives are at risk here. Let's take a look at the data. A trans activist organization in the UK reported 52% of trans and non-binary people in the US have considered suicide, and 20% of them have attempted suicide. So mental health and suicide are two major factors that should get better if acceptance and transition is the best solution. What is startling, though, is when you look at the countries that are more accepting and affirming, like Sweden, the UK, the Netherlands, they're not doubling down on these tactics. They're actually shutting down their clinics. Sweden announced last year it's ending all gender therapy treatment for minors because they weren't seeing improved results in their patients. This spring, England closed the Tavistock Clinic, which was their nation's only provider of gender surgeries and treatments for teens, because an independent national review found, quote, the current model of care was leaving young people at considerable risk of poor mental health and distress. In Amsterdam, Amsterdam of all places, 
The Center of Expertise on Gender Dysphoria put out a study that found 65 to 94% of trans teens cease to identify as trans by young adulthood, meaning the vast majority of young people who face this battle in their body, by God's grace, will eventually no longer feel that way, simply through counseling and some time. These are inconvenient truths to, to the claims we hear in culture. And it's not like these are coming from non-accepting countries. Sweden has been doing transition surgeries for 50 years. There's an entire generation raised up where it's accepted, and yet mental health is not improving with affirmation and transition. One more study on this, and then I'll get practical. The Yale School of Medicine worked with an institute in Sweden and tracked 2,600 trans people over a period of 10 years. And they reported that the science proved transition surgeries improved mental health for trans people. They put it out. It made the rounds in media. Everyone seemed excited that it proved the value of affirmation and acceptance as our best tactic against mental unwellness and suicide prevention. But when other research institutes looked at the data, the study was so heavily criticized, Yale had to run an academic correction, and they had to retitle the entire report because they made claims that simply weren't in the data. The new title, which still stands today, is this. Trans individuals at greater risk of mental health problems. Because that's all it proved. It showed the people who had been confirmed and diagnosed as transgendered in Sweden are six times more likely to have a mood or anxiety disorder, two times more likely to need depression and anxiety meds, six times more likely to be hospitalized due to attempted suicide. And most shocking of all, when they tracked people who did have surgery versus those who didn't, the suicide rate, uh, attempt rate in the surgery group was nearly double than those who, who did not have surgery. And that the risk of suicide at every and, and that the risk of suicide at every stage of transition. Why do I go into all that? Because I want to answer our questions, but perhaps more importantly, I want to question our answers. At the heart of the transgender issue is the idea that your brain and your real self can be at war with your body. Remember, we talked about this in week one. It's called personhood theory. But instead of helping genuine people align their feelings with their body, we're encouraging them to change the body to match their feelings. And it's not producing any good. We must be compassionate people and lead with love, but we also must lead from reality. Not a wish of what we hope is helpful, but what is actually beneficial. And that comes from aligning with God's truth in Scripture and holding firm to reason as we seek the good of anyone who's going through the distress. So we've seen what God says. We've seen what the science says. In light of all this, let me just make this practical. What do we say? For the parent leading their kid, the friend helping a coworker, for the Jesus follower trying to live faithfully and humbly in this moment, what do we do with all this? I've got two things for you, and then we're done. Number one, your intimacy determines your intensity. Your relationship with someone is what determines how you approach them, whether it's hot topics like this or deeply personal and stuff in life. Like, for real, this is why you don't tell your boss when you've got a rash. Because your intimacy determines the level of and the intensity of what you're going to share, right? 
Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or vile or drunk or a swiddler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul is saying the intensity in which you bring the truth of God into the world is based on the level of intimacy that you have with them. Specifically, in this example, he's talking about how you talk to Christians inside the church versus without. So how I approach someone outside of the church in the world who doesn't follow Jesus, who's dealing with gender dysphoria, is going to be different than from someone who has trusted Christ as their Lord. I know people who struggle with the idea of whether to use someone's new pronouns or call them whatever they want, because to do so feels like you're participating in something that actually harms them. And I get that. But I come back to what Paul said, and I remember it. The intensity of the truth I speak must be determined by the intimacy that I have with that person. So how I treat a barista or an acquaintance or maybe a friend of a friend, that's different. If I don't have a close relationship with that person, I I will try to be very careful. Generally, I I won't use pronouns at all, but I will try to be as respectful as I can. Now, I'm not saying to bait and switch people. I don't want us to lie about what submitting to Jesus means and how he demands our whole lives. But as serious as gender dysphoria is, the truth is, we all have a more severe condition, and it's called sin. And before we fix anything else, sin in all of us must be addressed and remedied by putting our faith in Jesus. That's my ultimate priority for anybody that I come across, and my conversations reflect that. I want all of us to come to know Jesus and let him go to work on whatever sins we have. Now, on the flip side, if you're navigating this with your child, remember, your intimacy determines your intensity. And that's why it is a loving reasonable and and right. It is loving, reasonable, and right for a parent to handle things much differently than you would with an acquaintance. I actually spoke to a guy from Canada who's gay and was married to a woman for decades until she passed away a few years ago. He has an incredible testimony of God's faithfulness with his same-sex attraction. He travels around the world and he talks to churches all over about how to navigate all things LGBTQ and the church. And I met him last year, and I asked him, how would you advise parents to handle it when their kids want to use different pronouns? This is what he said to me. He said, I would tell parents to use the pronouns that they gave their kids and don't let their kids choose. Parents, especially Christian parents, need to stay grounded in reality, especially as their kids struggle and try to navigate all the loud voices in culture. And this is really hard. Because voices from culture will be screaming at you and saying that you're not loving if you stick to their birth name or pronouns that you gave them. But loving someone well has nothing to do with affirming the decisions they make. You know this is true. If your daughter struggled with anorexia and said, I'm fat, when in fact they're very thin, you would not go along with that. You can, loving your children, our children well does not, mean always going along with what they tell you is true. You can love your child deeply and not affirm the decisions that they've made. But as we speak the truth, it must be done wisely, with compassion, and based on the intimacy that we have with someone. 
So number one is that. Your intimacy determines your intensity. And the number two thing I want to say is this. Hold on. Hold on. In the study I mentioned from Yale, the only factor that contributed to the improved mental health was the amount of time someone had gone through counseling and and medication and treatment. And in order for us to love and lead well, we need to hold on because healing and growth takes time. You all know 1 Corinthians 13. It's It's the part of the Bible that people quote at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-serving. You know that, right? What's really interesting is that the first description of love in that passage is that love is patient. And you know what you need to be patient? It's time. That's why I think at this moment our calling is to hold on. To the friend who is close to someone facing gender dysphoria, hold on to them. Hold on to that relationship. Continue to build bridges of connection so that in time, Patiently, you may be able to speak the truth with intimacy in a way that's well-received. If you're a parent, hold on to your child. Hold on to God's word. Hold on to hope. And point your child to the identity that they can have in Christ. That what they feel or who they think they are is not the last word on their life is. Jesus is. And that even if they don't do what you want, nothing can separate them from your love And you model the love of God over their lives in how you pursue them with conviction and compassion. And maybe as a practical next step, Rachel mentioned earlier about small groups that are launching here in the next week. We have a group called Grace and Truth 2.0, and it's going to talk about this and many other issues all kind of swirling around that. Topher is going to be leading that, and I, I, I highly recommend that group. We had a group go through that last year. Great conversation, great digging into this stuff, that group aligned launches this next week, you can sign up uh, for that Grace and Truth 2.0. And for the person here in the room who is trans, I'm tender for you because you probably already feel like you're holding on. You probably feel like things are slipping through your fingers, that people treat you different. Maybe you've lost friendships or family. I'm pleading with you, instead of living this next season from a place of barely holding on, I'm begging you, just try to hold on to Jesus. Discover who he is. Take on his rhythms of grace. Learn about his love for you and let him speak, to him, speak for himself through Scripture. I don't want to beat you over the head with the Bible I want to invite you into the new identity you can have in Christ, where even in the face of suffering, peace, uh, in the face of suffering, peace and rest and mercy are available to you because you've put your trust in Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this stuff is difficult. Um, culture is loud, and there's not a one of us in the room that haven't been affected by it. This stuff is difficult, it's personal, it's hard to handle well, but we can't not talk about it. You created us on purpose, you gave us identity and direction, and God, I I believe we most flourish when we ally with your purpose and identity and direction for our lives, so help us to see the truth here, to lean into it even when it makes us uncomfortable, to, to stay at the table even when it's hard and to learn from you. God, I I pray you whisper into all of our hearts and minds and souls 
and speak to us the truth in a world that um, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of tolerance for that, that kind of talk. Um, but it's needed now, um, maybe, maybe more than ever. Thank you, God, for loving us, for um, revealing yourselves to us as a father um, and, and loving us well as your children. May we, may we reflect your image well as men and women um, together in this world. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.